I am joined once again by Nick Glinsman, founder of Malmgren Glinsman Partners. Nick, welcome back to Forward Guidance. What have you made of the past few months? What do you have your eye on it in macro these days? Um, it's it's tough because actually, if you if you refer to past few months or past six months even, where have we gone? <laughs> it, you know, it's it's been round circles, but back to the levels. Um, I'm a little concerned about the narrowing of the equity market. I think that's dangerous. Okay. Explain what you mean. You mean it's just Apple, Microsoft are leading the yeah, way. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I just I, I find that dangerous. I sort of understand it, but it's still somewhat uh, uh, risky in my view. I think general view is that, and I'm not a contrarian for contrarian's sake, but I sense that, uh, for example, a lot of people have been negative the dollar's direction. We know a lot of people are negative dollar on de-dollarization arguments, but you know we've, we've handled that. Um, but negative in the direction of the dollar, I actually think the dollar's on the verge of having another upswing. Why is that? Uh, and, well, I think a lot of people put money into China at the beginning of the year. A lot of people went long Europe out of the US, and it sort of must be disappointing them, particularly those in, into China. Again, there's, you know, people are buying emerging markets. But if our estimation of a slowdown in the US, and I think the, I think Europe and China are already on the way down, and I'll, we can cover that in a second, um, people will go back to the dollar. Um, and it, these trades won't work. I mean, China hasn't worked, and it's, you know, even on the initial reopening trade, it was a disappointing uh, reaction in terms of where the markets actually got to. Now we're seeing, and I think we discussed this in the previous video uh, discussion we had where Harold was on board. Now we're seeing that China's data is actually disappointing. Even the data that came out last night, which was Monday, um, on the economic data, looked good, but if you if you looked at where they were compared with from last year, they were always going to look good, but they were significantly yeah. below estimation. Um, and I think what we're seeing is, and this is where, you know, I always say that if the U.S. Catch, sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. I think the U.S. is sneezing because things have begun to break a bit somewhat. Um, but definitely Europe and China, are, you know, if you look at Germany, mercantilist export surplus nation look at china the same they're disappointing i mean manufacturing orders in germany uh, i think that came out on at the end of last week was a disaster absolute mm -hmm. disaster um and i think what we're seeing uh, and we'll cover this a, a little bit later is there is a decoupling going on okay but i think there's two decouplings going on Obviously, U.S. and developed markets, but I think China and Xi is decoupling too, and quite aggressively. So if that's and you know I go back to that Qiushi article at the beginning of the year from Xi, where he de-emphasized exports and looked at domestic consumption and infrastructure investment as leading the economy out of it, plus exports to emerging markets. Well, you can't rely on exports to emerging markets unless you have leverage on them. So I suspect Belt and Road leverage. Trouble is, Belt and Road is proving quite problematic because the original recipients of 
Belt and Road investments, loans, etc., are none too happy. It's almost a generic um, reaction. Uh, well, the worst case scenario is uh, Sri Lanka and Pakistan. Well, so, Nick, I, I want to get your thoughts more on this decoupling Europe and China in a moment. But let's just stick with sort of bread and butter, bread and butter macro for for now. Do you think the Federal Reserve is done hiking rates? I think we're now at five point two five percent. Do you think cuts are imminent? Do you how, how do you think that will impact the, the stock market? Okay, I think it's fifty fifty on June as to whether they hike another twenty five. Really? Um, yeah, because they are data dependent and. We still have inflation way above their targets, whichever measure you tend to, to take, right? Um, will they cut? I don't think they'll cut this year unless they've really broken something. Now, have they broken something now? Uh, it's been well, reasonably well controlled. Um, I think maybe you know a handful of, not, of other regional banks are probably exposed. Uh, and we may see some more accents, but they have controlled it. Um, oh, great. You know, we, we had called in January for uh, some sort of credit crunch in March, April, which actually came to fruition. Uh, better lucky than clever. We got the timing, you know, the timing right, uh, which is why we were saying, look, hedge your portfolio. If you're short treasuries, buy a call spread, okay, on the price or put spread on the yield. Uh, that also worked well, but it strikes it strikes me that where we're going right now, the biggest risk is that not seen, right? And what what I talk when I say that not seen is probably private equity and private credit, the shadow banking system. Um, I think we have quite a lot of risks that's come to the fore in. And it's, a, it's just like 2007, 2008. Interestingly enough, problems seem to originate not necessarily in New York first, but in California. Yes. Right? Um, king of the 1% mortgage. King of the 1% mortgage. It's ridiculous. King of the 1% mortgage against collateral that's more questionable than not, if that makes sense. Oh, I've got a private company. We've just raised money. It's worth $3 billion. I own 30%, how much of a mortgage can I get? You can get this and we'll give you the mortgage of 1%, right? Um, yes, but I think that the odds of being paid back are accurately perceived as very high because this person is a billionaire and if they get yeah. you know, wiped out, they still have a lot of money. It's, yeah. it's just that they got these sweetheart deals so that they would keep their money at the bank and did all sorts of tying agreements, which- Carry is you, terrible. They yeah, it's, it's half terrible. legal, half not legal. You're very uh, uh, sort of- warped on the legislation there and then also yeah these tons of interest rate risk you know uh, the value of a mortgage gets clobbered when you make it at one percent when interest rates are at zero percent and then interest rates go to 5.25 percent so just get wiped out absolute carnage clear clear to me uh risk management was lacking yeah svb that was a clear risk management situation um so i think we you know we're very aware of the the regional banks i think they're you know, people have been worried about the commercial real estate market and the impact on the regional banks or the banking sector in total. You know, of the big, the systemic banks, only 1% of their assets are exposed to commercial real estate. Plus, they have a massive asset diversification, diversified asset portfolio. Yes, they're losing deposits, but they can more than compensate for that. 
It's and, and Dominican, you're, abs- you're absolutely right. Uh, I didn't know one percent, but I take your word for it. But yeah, uh, for the large, you know, Bank of America, uh, J.P. Morgan, small percentage of commercial real estate, and uh, their deposits to the extent that they're leaving, they kind of still they kind of uh, don't care that they're leaving. Like the yeah. uh, retail deposit rates are something like I thought from Bank of America, like sixteen basis points. Oh, so it's horrible. So they're I letting them leave. Me. Like if they, if they, yeah. You know that that they're they're my banks. That's that's my bank, and it's you know you sit there going, um, and I I have very little choice because I'm offshore, so mm-hmm. I can't go to Apple and get you know four plus percent. But um, I think what worries us is in the commercial real estate market, it's it's split into sectors. There is one outstanding opportunity, which could actually we could use to segue into the the China. Uh, discussion decoupling um obviously multifamily residential has suffered but given the housing shortage probably there are ways to overcome it uh but that depends on who holds the assets office is the the really big big problem and you know if you look at the office market either insurance companies own them own the office I'm talking a broad brush. Yes, certain banks own their own offices. In certain, mm-hmm. But as a broad brush, uh, the office segment is owned probably directly by a lot of insurance companies. The office debt or the equity in the building? Uh, actually, equity. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay. And then on the pension funds, their exposure comes on CMBS. So commercial mortgage-backed securities are bonds, yeah, basically. Exactly. And you're talking about two segments of the market on the buy side that are very slow moving. Uh, so Calsters have had a big problem with commercial real estate. I suspect the really big ones also have exposure to debt and maybe equity, equity too on the pension fund side. But, you know, if you look at the insurance companies, you just walk down Fifth Avenue, MetLife, right? So, you know, there's a lot of, Lot of, that's where the exposure is, and that's you're talking a lot about secondary banking or the shadow banking. Sorry, the shadow mm-hmm. banking. And I go back to the piece we wrote, which had a which was a follow up to the credit crunch article we did in January. We we wrote the piece about the sec, secondary banking crisis in the UK in the early seventies, um, where we said you would the 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 comparison was fantastic started off as a secondary banking crisis and then within months which created the lifeboat by the bank of england okay but with it within months it turned into a commercial real estate crisis which had a doom loop effect on the banks so it became secondary banking crisis commercial real estate crisis well funny that looks exactly the same sequence of events in the u.s and in fact when you look at it in, in that instance, the Bank of England got the big banks to put money into the lifeboat. What did the Fed do with the big banks? And I believe it was First Republic put some deposits in. Mm-hmm. 30, 30 billion? Yep. Uh, the I- identical. But what happened with the, in the UK is it was a multiplicative situation. It just kept rolling on until it didn't. And that's the risk it, in the US. It rolls on until the last weak link gets done in the banks, the regional banks. But the, there's this big shadow over the private market, the shadow banking market. And, you know, we don't know. We've seen uh, Blackstone gating, 
right? That's not a long-term solution, but they're so big it probably doesn't matter to them. There are clearly issues, and those issues have got to play out before we get any resolution. And I think what's interesting about the office side of the commercial real estate is it's not cyclical. This is structural. It kicked off with work from home. People haven't come back. Um, and you're seeing users of office space move from what they had to brand new, you know, there's so much brand new office space being built. They'll move in, they'll take a little less space as more people are working from home with all the latest, greatest features and green, and they become green compliant. What happens to all these old buildings? Value collapses. And that's, that's, those old buildings are primarily where a lot of the exposure in the secondary market, be it direct equity, direct lending, or CMBS, resides. Now, that, that is structural. It's not cyclical. Now, let me spin something optimistic out of the commercial real estate market. Mm-hmm. because of the trend towards the decoupling trend and the trend towards reshoring and onshoring and friendshoring, you've got to try and find factory space. That's a commercial real estate that, in my mind, has got massive upside. Would, you know, If there was a, an active market in Mexico, you probably would buy Mexican factory space. But certainly in the states where... Uh, you know, the southern states and the states where the CHIPS Act have focused on, you want to buy, okay? Yeah. And if you can get your hands on it, but it's near impossible unless you're actually going in at the equity or the private debt level. But upside there, because there probably isn't enough. You know? Right, but it's very hard to turn an office property in Boston into oh, a, yeah. you a can't, factory. You can't, that's no, that's you a little can't tough. Do that. I, I agree with you there. I agree yeah. with you there. But what I'm saying is, if you're a big fund, you know, uh, if you can shift out of one sector of commercial real estate, because they should have all their expert advisors, internal and external, if you can shift out of one into another. Also, the other, the other area that's doing quite well is hotels. Yes. So, you know. But Nick, you, you can't, sh- the time to shift would have been four years ago. You know? Agreed. So I mean, as as I said earlier, this is slow money. Pension and insurance company is very slow money. The time to shift was basically ahead of the pandemic. Yeah. Because uh, it was not really, you wouldn't have expected a shift from, there was a trend to move out to greener pastures from your, your own personal residential side. But there wasn't a shift of working from home. You know, there was a, you know, casual Fridays became casual week. Fine. There's no shift about allowing people to work from home all the time or every Friday or two out of three uh, out of five days a week. That's happened. Right. And and problem is getting them back in. Um, From what I hear, Goldman have pretty much got them back in. I think JP Morgan's getting close. I said today, um, BlackRock is going to mandatory four days a week. Yeah, but still, right? Yeah, uh, no. four days a week. I, I bet those four that one day is spread across the week. I bet the people t- who take Monday for work from home, people that take Friday work from home. Um, so it, it is that's the problematic, and that's the structural aspect. We would hard to anticipate, um, and obviously hard to execute in twenty twenty 
probably hard to execute in 2021 if you were going to do anything like this. CMBS, you should have been able to do something. Should have seen this. For, this was clear, you know, once they started talking about the problems of multi-residential commercial real estate, the obvious next stage was, you know, the obvious system to that was the office. That, you know, this is intense human uh, population within those those real estate areas. That was clearly all going to change. Uh, so, you know, we've been, we've been telling people wouldn't touch commercial real estate, particularly office, for the last year and a half. Um, what about now, though, if, with the premier uh, Class A real estate investment trusts that are already down in the stock market, like 80 to 85%? Well, it, it, you're now talking about an exercise that Michael Berry would have been really good at. You've got to go and look at what's in, for example, CMBS. What are, what are those mortgages? So you've got to know the properties. You've got to have a property expert. You've got to know the office offices in the portfolio yeah. and assess accordingly. If, if, it's a rec- I mean, if it's a recent property portfolio, you would be hopeful that it's got recent office buildings. Okay, yeah. But I don't think a lot of it is. You know, I think a lot of the CMBS consists of stuff you really wouldn't want to have. Yeah, no, I'm talking about equity, uh, real estate investment trusts that e- offer. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, the, the latest greatest office building. If you can get equity, or, or you know, I think equity's probably it's down seventy five to eighty percent. That's yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas the, the the because it's a private market and these things are not marked to market. In fact, they're the opposite. They're opposite. marked every 20 yeah. years. I mean, yeah. uh, that's where the pain has not been realized yet. I'm talking specifically for the benefit of hindsight about places, yeah. you know, SLG, VNO, those types of tickers, not, not investment advice. So, so Nick, just, just for the audience, you know, commercial real estate, it's not just office, it's office, multifamily, aka apartment buildings, hotels, yeah. factories, warehouses, uh, retail exactly. malls, all types of stuff, different places. What about the bank's exposure to commercial real estate? We've already established that well, banks, uh, big bank's exposure to office is small. And commercial even, you know, places that lend against a lot of commercial real estate, you know, I've gone through a lot of bank filings. It's like, you know, 15% office, 11% office, 22% office. So it's not all office. I haven't, no, I haven't I think they exist, but I haven't found The risk it. is, and this is how you have to assess. I think, actually, I'm just, I probably got a chart, but I had, didn't send it to you. You have to assess the handful of banks that people are very focused on. Um, let me see if I got this chart, because there's clearly concentration risk in, in these regional banks. But only some of them. Um, I would actually argue, and we can go on to that, there's a greater concentration risk in, say, Swedish banks and maybe German banks directly to commercial real estate. Um, and, and there there's a problem of complete illiquidity because they have real estate investment funds. Let me, sorry. Real estate I, investment funds that I don't believe that they actually are open-ended on the liability side, unlike exactly. the shadow banks in the U.S., which you talked about Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust, B-Read, oh, it's blocking, it's gating, it's people. That sounds bad for the investors, obviously, but it actually can uh, force a stability because there can only be so many withdrawals. You can't have a bank run when you exactly. know, Silicon Valley Bank could not gate its deposits. It, uh, it probably would still be around if it could. Um, exactly, but in Europe, exactly I've, right. I've read from the ECB that it's it's a lot more open-ended fund, which would be a, a catastrophe. Of the $4.5 trillion CRE mortgage market, Okay, we're looking at multifamily having the largest share, then office, office at 12.9. Oh, second, it's not the second, third is colors, office is 16.7. So, those are the two worst sectors, right? 
Um, the rest you're looking at industrial, retail. Retail is horrible, but people have got out of retail. There's, there's no doubt. Hotel, healthcare, and other. Now, healthcare could be interesting, um, but the bank exposure itself, banks held 1.73 trillion, which is 38%, just over, of CRA mortgages of income producing properties. Now, I, I would argue that a lot of that was, um, okay, so banks and thrifts, 38.4, government-backed agency, 20.8, life insurance, 14.7, CMBS, CDOs, and other 13.7, and other 12. Top 25 banks held 700 billion of CRE debt, okay? That's 4% of their total assets. Insignificant. You would you have a concentration risk in that? There's a possibility. Yeah, in that one like, bank doesn't have any commercial real estate, but there's one that has fifty percent of commercial real estate. There you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. The next hundred and ten banks. I knew I had these this data. This is really quite explicit. Next hundred and ten banks, which have ten billion to one hundred and sixty billion of assets, held eight hundred billion, which is sixteen percent of CRE debt. So that starts to increase the odds that there's a concentration risk in. In the medium, the four thousand smaller banks held. This is where it's seven hundred and fifty billion, which is fifteen percent of total CRE debt. And what percentage of their assets? Fifteen uh, percent. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, without doubt, within that group, there's concentration risk. Okay, that's where you've got to be careful. That's where somebody like Chris Wallen would be great because he, he knows the banks inside out, the bank's balance sheets. And yeah. if somebody said to me, we want you to do work on this, that's where I'd actually start. You know, okay, investigating what's the CR, CRE debt exposure, okay, to, to of these 4,000 smaller banks. And I suspect, you know, you interviewed him last week, Patrick Perrett-Green, he put out a warning back in October about watch the regional banks and spot on. I mean, it was really spot on. Did he put it out there they're going to be exposed to CRE debt? No. Did he put it out there that, you know, you can transfer all your money click of a phone? And that's the big difference. It's the click of the phone transfer. You just have to have a – I mean, I, SVB, the thing that just tipped them out straight off was Peter Thiel's – announcement that he told everybody to get up of his, of his you know, uh, the, the uh, investments he had. Out, you've got to be out. Mm -hmm. That's, so from my perspective, technology didn't work too well in terms of the banking system. And, you know, you go back to 1907 and J.P. Morgan, you didn't have that chance. They closed the doors. J.P. Morgan calls in the next three biggest banks and says, we're going to do this, and it gets resolved. Fed didn't have that chance, nor did the FDIC. So um, I think what we've got, again, it's back to structural, is a structural trend towards a more concentrated banking market. Easier for the authorities to um, control. Less yeah, so, yeah, so, so, so Nick, I just want to know, I, I got Patrick's note in front, in front of me, which I actually got through you, so thank you. But he did he did flag CRE loans. I'm, I'm yeah. seeing the thing. But, oh, he so, did, okay. But okay. so Nick, I just want to ask you, uh, so does that mean, do you see any opportunities in select regional bank stocks, the smaller ones that have, you know, their, their share prices have fallen sharply or no? Yeah, I, I think there are. 
Um, you know, the other area of, of the regional banks, you've got, if, if, if you actually, and it's not, not necessarily a topic for today, but if we suddenly saw a reason that crude oil was going to rally hard, you'd have a look at the regional banks in the, the shale area because they're sitting on debt. I don't know whether they're sitting on equity, but debt to a lot of these oil, these small fracking, or the, the smaller fracking companies whose loan to value would improve dramatically if oil was higher. So it depends yeah. on the region and depends on what their asset mix is. You know, it's very speculative to say, would you buy it? It's what you, what's the rationale behind it? So we've just spoken about the CRE debt situation. Um, but regional banks are not just CRE. A lot of them were exposed to the oil sector, oil and gas sector. Um, I wonder how, you know, the question is, are they doing okay? Uh, I suspect that they're, they're, they're I think, they are. I think those loans are getting paid off if oil's at 70 bucks. I, I tend to agree with you. And if oil's at 140 bucks, it's not like that much more valuable because they have debt, not equity. So their, their upside is capped, perhaps. Yeah. But, but Nick, what about, so obviously there's banks that have incredibly specific uh, um, loans. You know, as, There are community banks that cater to different communities, even different yeah. businesses and the like. But what about, you know, there are a lot of regional banks that actually their assets, it's pretty simple. 60% yeah. is mortgages to people at relatively low rates because they were made when interest rates were at zero. Uh, so a 3% coupon, a 4% coupon, and the pro they're probably going to pay it back because they have a lot of equity in their home. So it's not a 2008, 2007, you know, subprime no, crisis. Not, it's not comparable to that. But they're going to have to pay more on their deposits and it's just, their net interest margin, is they're just going to get totally squeezed. I mean, what about th that sort of opportunity? Well, you're asking me whether the Fed's going to cut rates soon. <laughs> yeah, I am. Right? And that's basically what you're asking. That, that's the call one's making. So, <clears throat> uh, so, so by, by saying that, Nick, you're, you're saying that if the Fed doesn't cut rates, these banks are n not a good opportunity. Uh, they should be okay for it. They should be able to survive a, a year or two. I mean, otherwise, the whole fractional banking system is not, not set up. I tend to think that, you know, I, I, I had mortgages back in the – uh, late 80s in the UK, which was 15%. And, you know, the marginal change when, especially after after dropping out of the ERM, you're sitting there going, oh, uh, or before dropping out of the ERM, you're sitting That's there going, oh. Exchange rate mechanism? Yes. Yeah. Right when, uh, you know, Black Friday, mm -hmm. uh, the pound collapsed. Um, but when the pound collapsed, the, I remember I, I was we were there all night on the settlement trading floor in London. Um one of the conversations was go to the bank the next day and refinance yeah. into floating, right? That and, and literally at nine, you know, eight thirty, nine o'clock, there's a whole bundle of people, and I, I, I did it myself. Went to the bank and said, "I want to refinance because rates collapsed into floating." Yes, yeah. So yeah. a similar trade to people who refinanced their mortgage very smartly uh, in you know. 2020 when yeah i mean yeah. or even before to be yeah. honest with you right um but then you know again i get back to this point about structural not cyclical uh will rates ever go to zerp again in our lifetimes or i well let me put it in the next decade i doubt it i think there i think there's a reticence to get back to that 
situation. Nick, are you confident enough in that view to put on some, let's see, what would they be? Uh, short call spreads where you're basically betting that rates don't go to 0% again? Because I know that a lot of people, hedge fund managers, people on Twitter who say that they want to buy these call spreads, but I don't know. What do you want to sell one of these? If you think ZERP is not going to be, you know, ZERP, oh, zero interest rate policy is Yeah, I would fast. say it. I would okay. say it. I think, I think the floor has got to be one, one and a half percent. And I think that may even be stretching it. Um, they want more. They want more flexibility. I mean, we can go into the Fed if you want. I mean, I agree with some of your previous guests. This is a Fed that has made. A, it's not just the Fed; it's ECB and the Bank of England. Horrendous error. Teams transitory. And I'll give you a, an interesting critique of somebody who's now in the White House. Um, vice Chair of the Fed led Team Transitory, Lael Brainard. Lael was also responsible for the regulation of banks. Another error on the Fed. So two huge errors led by the person that everybody leaned on for, for the economic view. Okay? And now she's in the Biden White House, right? Um, I think they, they don't want to be caught with their pants down ever again, ever being not inf ad infinitum, but, you know, they, they got caught. And that's why we've seen, if we'd started to raise rates a year earlier, right, up from zero, from ZERP, and do it slowly, probably some of the, this st bank stress may not have happened. Um, you know, right. it was said to Be me- Because deposit rates- would have moved up very, very slowly as they did in the last hiking cycle. Exactly. There's a great exactly. chart uh, comparing uh, their, and that just you know, screenshot how much their their NIM, their loan yields, and their deposit costs went up during this rate cycle when versus, it exploded higher versus uh, you know 2015, yeah. 2016, 2017. And it's just it's just night and day. I mean, they, you know, it, given the dependency on forward guidance when rates were low. Right, they could have forward guided. Look, we're we're on a we're, we're not going to stop, but we're not going to go crazy. We're not doing fifty or seventy five basis points. Remember, Greenspan was the expert at twenty five basis points move. Yes, he did higher rate hikes and rate cuts, but those were usually in exceptional circumstances. Um, I think you know that the, again another part of the structural changes. Everything, time has been compressed, right? Time to react to stuff has been compressed. You have to react. If you're, if you're a shorter-term trader, which I'm not anymore, you have to react in a shorter time cycle on everything in the markets. And, and really, I, my view is the last six months, hiding to nothing. Just, you, know, you can stick with the views and you can trade the upper level and the lower level and, and be reasonably... Uh, reasonably okay with it, such that you know, with the Liz Truss, uh, shall we say, consequences on the markets, you always buy sterling when it's close to one to the dollar, close to parity. And you know where you stop yourself out, but you always buy it. And it was a great buy. We told clients, buy sterling here. Well, where are we now? Just under 125. Yeah. It was a fantastic buy. So there are things to be done that you can sit back and, and you know, not be at the screen the whole time. But I think what's happened is everything gets faster. Reactions have to be faster. Time's compressed. 
this this whole rate hiking cycle has been in a shorter time span because they lent on team transitory, whereas in fact they should have just, okay, we've got to start raising rates in a slower, coordinated way. And to be honest with you, rates are five and a quarter. So what? You know, before before um, 07, you know, you go back to the 90s, even the 80s, you go back, this was this was cheap. Where we are now was considered cheap, back in the 80s for sure, right? There's this desire to avoid boom bust, avoid a recession. Well, actually, the longer you think you're going to avoid a recession, increases the odds that the recession could be quite sharp. Okay, steer it slowly down to the recession. I know the Fed are looking at a soft landing. Stop using that language. Soft landing. It's it's impossible to steer to a soft landing. Yes, they kind of have. Powell has backed off fact soft landing a little yeah, bit. He's he's exactly. using words like bumpy now. Exactly. Um, but Nick, the okay. So, so you is- said the the past six months has been chop. You know, equity markets grinded higher. You know, bonds rally as well. But it's you know kind of you know up and down, up and down. Uh, if no you've gone away news. for six months, nothing really would have changed. Too much. Yeah. What do you think about the next six months or next twelve months? Let's say. I mean, do you think there's going to be a lot of volatility? Yes. Bonds up, stocks up. Yeah. I, no, well, I think what you're going to see is bonds lower yields, the bond market lower yields. I think you're going to start to see, and we've started, we've seen it already. Where is it right now? Um, okay, twos fives at 52 basis points. Twos tens, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that yield curve starts to gather pace on the bull steepening, or, so that would be bull de inversion and then yes. bull steepening. So that's it, t- it's a recession. Is the ten-year uh, yield minus the two-year yield? Two year, exactly, or vice versa. Um, they were minus fifty-two base, fifty-two and a half basis points. Yeah, and and so right now it's negative. So the two-year yield is higher than the the ten-year exactly. an inverted curve. And we say a bull steepening, that would mean that would move out of inversion, which has been happening because short-term we interest rates falling, which are pricing started. a Fed cut. But you don't think the Fed's going to cut anytime soon? No, but you know I'm talking. I'm, you said the next six months. That's fine. I, yeah. I, I, people are talking pivot June, cut the meeting. I mean, there's some nonsensical stuff going on because actually the Fed is a slow-moving super tanker, rather like pension funds and investment and insurance companies on the buy side and sovereign wealth funds. They have so much money, they can't move that quickly. Um, so the, if we see that bull steepening, that's a recession. That's because of a recession. Then you see the Fed starting to cut. Uh, I don't see how a recession is good for risk. And if we look at disappointing economic data and the implications of that right now, just look at where copper is. 366. It wasn't that long ago it was over 400 on the uh, COMEX, right? That's got a long way... That, that, that has a long way to go down if that trend in Chinese economic data continues. That's risk. Dr. Copper is a risk measurement. Gold-copper ratio is a risk measurement, and gold has massively outperformed copper. And these are, these are things you can't ignore in terms of what's going on, on out elsewhere. You also had, uh, you, see, you started seeing trucking rates and freight rates internally into the U.S. start to dive. Now, they lag freight rates on the shipping side. But freight rates are back down to the lows. Can we see that again in trucking? 
It's quite possible. If that's the case, we're, we've got a recessionary situation. And I think risk won't do well. Um, will those big tech companies perform and keep NASDAQ higher? Possibly. But, you know, I, I tend to think that I'm getting more indications from listening to Maersk on the shipping company side and Home Depot. Nick, so, so thanks for sharing your view. I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. But just for the sort of sake of conversation, I'll propose uh, it was about a year ago. I was walking around in New York City and I was listening to none other than legendary macro investor Stan Druckenmiller, who was interviewed for some conference. And granted, this is 2022. Yeah. And he was noting that his guide to the business cycle is the internals of the stock market. And he was talking about trucking rates going down and trucking stocks being very weak as a harbinger of a recession. And I think, you know, number one, I mean, there's no one better than Stan Druckenmiller. We can agree. Agreed. And number two, uh, the economic growth uh, one year hence from that prediction probably has been higher than that that comment would have suggested. I mean, yeah. uh, the price of copper did did go up, and you know we we had you know unemployment rate is is still um, in the you know three percent range. So we, we you know, it, we haven't entered recession likely. Um, and if we if we had a recession, it was because inflation was so high uh, about about a, a year ago during the summer of twenty twenty two. You're but, playing devil's advocate on me. Aren't yeah, you? but so so what gives you confidence, Nick? That you know one year hence you won't have made the same prediction that you know Stan Druckenmiller said, but. You know, how do you know that this one is like the, the time, you know? Okay. The, 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 if we don't have any pullback on economic growth from where we are and unemployment, Fed's not moving. Why would the Fed cut rates until we're right back at 2%? If economic growth, if retail sales, if un, but particularly if unemployment stays where we are. Another top 25 bank fails. Uh... They're coping with it. As long as it's not a systemic bank, they're coping with these banks. And actually, it's that, like, you know, one domino falls. Oh, it's not systemic. Two dominoes fall. It's, you know, these things. But until it's systemic, I agree with you. But until it is systemic, ceteris paribus, let's use the economic phrase of the original economic phrase, Keter, all things being equal, if, if we are where we are now, and maybe one or two more of these regional banks, they can be big. Um, fail again they don't seem worried you're not hearing that out of the fed you're not hearing that out of the treasury uh the fdic are not talking about that so so the point is if we're still where we are now and unemployment is still at 3.4 percent or 3.6 percent um the fed are gonna you know will disappoint on the cutting cycle because inflation as much as chinese ppi is coming down Inflation is proving quite sticky. And I suspect there are going to be areas of sticky inflation. We saw, we saw an uptick in, in wage pressures as well, given the, the, the non-farm payroll days of last week. Sticky inflation will be the harbinger of a Fed stay, staying put, okay? Especially with unemployment where we are. So unemployment stays here. Until that inflation rate is sub three, why are the Fed going to cut? They're not. There's no reason to. So that will create a whole different interest rate risk-free environment. And um, we have to see. The market will tell you when there's a recession coming, and it's that bull steep through the Treasury curve. That's the thing that's going to tell you. If you see that, and we've had a partial 
bull D inversion. But if, if the twos tens gets to positive, then you know stuff is getting bad. And, and it gets the there because two-year yields fall, not because 10-year yields rise. Yeah, and thank you, Nick. The term bull D inversion, so helpful because for so long I've been looking for a phrase that means bull steepening, but when it already is an inversion, so but you know that doesn't really make sense because it's not actually steep, but it's de-inverting. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Nick, you know, I wasn't planning on this, but the thought just occurred to me, and it's a thought experiment, so I have no, you know, agenda here. But what if you know we approach the 2024 election cycle, and you know, in America there are swing states like like Florida, uh, like North Carolina, where it's it's. Uh, pressure's on. It's game on. Uh, the, you know, the Democrats want to win. They got to win the state. Oh, the Republicans got to win. You know, it's not an easy victory. So that's really where the, the battleground is. Political battleground is going, is going to be. What if a bank, a big bank headquartered there, fails, and there's a lot of political pressure for the Fed to cut rates? Um. Well, interestingly enough, what did they do ahead of the midterms? SPR release. That was the that was the administration. What did the Fed do? Nothing. <laughs> exactly right. You know they 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 continued on their rate path. Yes, so, but you could say that was because the greatest threat to the American economy was inflation. Okay, but I think that was a good expression of the Fed being apolitical. And remember, who put. Jay Powell in, and remember what party with, with, with whom he is affiliated. Yes, he's got more Democrat-appointed members of the FOMC and, and the regional banks, but always remember the Fed isn't a democracy. And he, he's affiliated with the Republican Party. That's historically his. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but Nick, what did he do he when, did, he didn't Trump, when President Trump, Trump said – I don't know who he tweeted. I don't know who's a bigger threat to America, you know, President Xi, Xi Jinping or Jay Powell. I was saying very anti-Powell things, saying he's going to you know, threaten to fire Jay Powell. And what happened later? The Powell pivot of 2018, 2019. Yes, but that's Trump. That's Republican. So I, to be honest with you, I, I think they've, that was one thing they proved. You know, people can doubt whether the Fed is apolitical, but I thought that was actually quite a significant point. And by the way, and this segues into our next topic, um, I think the politics and the situation with China becomes much more uh, aggressive, stressed, as we run into the, the election. I think you're going to see both parties try and outhawk each other on, on China. Now, I've been told that within Congress, the Democrats are not as hawkish as the, the Republicans. Uh, and I've been told there's complete, it's the one thing both sides can agree on. So if it's one thing that both sides can agree on, the politicking behind it will, be, will likely be quite aggressive. Okay? And if we're watching, given what we've seen recently, is this a good time to move into the? Yeah, the let's, let's do it. So I'll just set the stage. So, so Nick, okay. I think in uh, you know, mid February, you and your partner uh, Harold Malmgren, who's very plugged in uh, to, to Washington D.C., uh, said predicted that there would be a uh, executive order sort of banning new investment from from U.S. Uh, into China. Uh, how has that prediction played out? What has happened since then? Well, the executive order is coming. Uh, the initial talk over the last 
two weeks was it was going to come before G7. Then we had Jake Sullivan meet Wang Yi, his, his, uh, Chinese foreign minister. Um, and it seems that there were two days of substantive talks. One wonders whether President Biden will be using reverse CFIUS with regard to an executive order as a, elements of it as a quid pro quo. It's unlikely we haven't heard that's going to be the case. So we're waiting for G7 to pass. The G7 members are aware of reverse CFIUS. And once they're with the G7 meeting? And also, why, week, why, do you call it, why do you call it reverse CFIUS? Reverse CFIUS. Okay, CFIUS is what controls... If there's an investment from a Chinese entity into a sensitive industry within the U.S., uh, the administration can review it and reject it. Okay? Uh, reverse CFIUS is... This is where it gets interesting. I think the new word is firmer, but reverse CFIUS is now... and if. You may want to bring up that chart. Um, the reverse CFIUS is now looking at outbound investment. Okay? So what what we're looking at with an executive order, and, of, and I've split that chart into now and later. Later represents what Congress will bring in. Now is the executive order. So out, out, outbound investment barred would be advanced semiconductors. Uh, and the Dutch and Japanese are even on board with the idea that the machinery to make advanced semiconductors, uh, which they specialize in, is also within the scope of reverse they're, they're willing partners in reverse CFIUS. Um, outbound investment, which would be subject to notification, I believe that notification, although it should go to commerce, uh, is probably more likely to go to treasury, but that's still up in the air. That would restrict quantum computing investments and artificial intelligence investments. And if you're aware of Mark Warner, he's who heads the Senate Finance Committee for Intelligence, he's really worried about the, the AI side of things. Um, and where capital will be impacted, as I list there, venture capital, private equity, corporate investments. So if Intel were to want to open a new factory in China producing advanced semiconductors, they will be stopped. Uh, and this all this applies to new investments only, okay? Um, and so, Nick, on the screen it says now, but just important, this has not been passed, but you expect it to be passed imminently. It's imminent, absolutely yeah. it's imminent. Now, the interesting aspect of this is in the American Constitution, I think it's Article 8, um, Congress is actually responsible for trade policy, not the president. But when it's national security, the president can act as in an executive order or Trump's tariffs, okay? We expect the EO not to be broad enough for Congress. And, you know, the leader on in terms of congressional terms, is Mike Gallagher, who runs the House Committee on China, which was set up about six months ago. Um, so you actually have a committee in the House that just focuses on China. Now, Mike Gallagher is a really interesting character. This is not your typical politician. Mike Gallagher, seven years duty in the Middle East as a U.S. Marine officer. But he's also got a Ph.D. in international relations from Georgetown. 
he is likely to be a rising policy influencer, foreign policy influencer in Washington. Um, and Mike is really driving this, but it is very bipartisan, both in the House and in the Senate. So we expect, and this is the order that seems to have originally been accepted by President Biden, we expect Congress to issue legislation where, wherein you will add to the outbound investment barred or subject to notification, clean energy technology, biotech and biomanufacturing, particularly biotech, critical minerals, okay? Now, we also expect that will then, we'll then start to see publicly traded investments curtailed and retroactive clawback on previous investments. So the reason that that last square is there is not just because this is something Congress is looking at, but if you've noticed, um, I um, we have noticed that China is retaliating. And we've, Tell uh, us about that. Tell us what you're seeing there and with, with Bain and uh, the other companies. Bain, uh, there were three of them actually. It was um, Bain, Mintz, and... Capvision, I think, was the other one. These are three consulting firms that do a lot of due diligence for uh, an array of American clients, and, and for that matter, European clients. But American, let's start with the American side. Um, they do due diligence on their investments. That can be for private equity or venture capital, but that can actually also be for large funds taking big positions. Okay? Now, Back at the end of April, China changed the legislation on the Espionage Act to include consulting. And it's bringing due diligence into the, you know, this, this, these new laws and regulations brings due diligence within espionage terminology. So if you are an investor, whether you're a public share investor or you know, private equity or venture capital, and you can't, do, or corporate, you can't do your due diligence. Are you going to be making those investments? You may not be able to, because due diligence is one of the, the core facets of an investment process. And, you know, it got so bad with Bain that the Chinese arrested six of their local employees. Um, and this is, this is done. This is where it gets interesting. Um, the, the, the new, the updated espionage law, at the same time, President Xi took the state security agency, which is an equivalent to the KGB, made it independent from the, the, the policing side of, of China. So it's now independent, acts like the KGB, and it reports only to Xi. Okay? Now, we've stated that the markets, are, the Chinese economy is becoming infinitely more centralized. Um, you know, if you, if you recall in our paper, Hong Kong, Singapore, and the US dollar's future, uh, the reason why Singapore is outperforming Hong Kong and attracting family office money and, and fiduciaries is because Singapore is still under 
common law, which is the system of law used by the UK and the US. It's basically the law of finance and guarantees property rights. Um, Hong Kong has changed. Hong Kong is not no longer common law. It is subject to the law of Beijing. You don't have law of contract. You don't have law of tort. You don't have law of trust. Trust being as in trusts, as opposed to trusting somebody, as in trusts. So your legal status is subject to the whims of the of an ever-changing legal system in China. That and Nick, that changed in 2019, 2020, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, now, now, you know, it's questioned whether the, the in the appeals court in Hong Kong, uh, the, the Hong Kong authorities are now saying, we don't need UK appeals judges anymore. This this was this was fully up until 2019. Hong Kong was still acting according to common law. Then they changed it with the democracy riots and everything. They they put in because it was that change in law, which was the national security law, I think it was, that caused you know overrode everything else in the legal system. That was the end of common law in, in Hong Kong. So that that aspect of it gave you an example of how things can change. I'll give you a, a very simple example as a practical anecdote from a friend of mine who's involved in a venture capital fund, and they had an investment in a, a Chinese startup, which has just gone IPO in China. And in the documentation, it said, obviously, Restrictions for early investors is one year. Thereafter, you can sell your shares. One year has passed, and they, they went to sell the shares, VC fund, and the the Chinese regulator said, well, you can't. You're going to have to wait another six months, a year, or whenever I say you can. And they said, well, but in the documentation, it says that we can sell up. Well, I can decide. So the goalposts are like this all over the place. And that's why, for example, Singapore is now prevailing. I think it's outperforming six to one in terms of new family offices and fiduciary, you know, funds and hedge funds uh, setting up there. So yeah, I think Jens Jens Norvik, who I recently interviewed, he said just anecdotally he's seeing a lot of money flow from China into Singapore, like a yeah, lot. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Although it sometimes gets stopped. Uh, that investment banker. Um, Bao, I think his first name, I never remember his second name, who disappeared, who's disappeared, a real um, rainmaker for a lot of these tech funds in, in China. He was disappeared at the time he was trying to move 200 million from Hong Kong to Singapore to set up a family office for him and his family. So it's flu- fluid, not liquid, it's fluid. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, so you're seeing these change of laws. And what people are not anticipating, you are seeing a lot of movement out. Vanguard, Vanguard closed its office and, and got rid of uh, um, its local employees. Uh, one of the Canadian big Canadian pension funds closed its Shanghai office. All investment back to, to, to uh, I believe, Toronto. And why why did they close their office? And what are the consequences of that directly? Like, I think you still can invest in China via Vanguard. You, yes, you can. Uh, it, but it, there is a de-emphasis of putting presence there. There is a de-emphasis for Vanguard of raising Chinese funds. Okay? So 
because they're not going to be emphasis on raising Chinese funds to invest elsewhere to, or, elsewhere or, invest or in China. Yeah. So there is not Keteris Paribus. All things are not equal. Um, you heard that there was a story of Mark Mobius. Couldn't get his money out for quite a while. Uh, then he was able to do so. But there's something else that's occurred. Um, so if we look at, you know, let's, let's take the history and then, then I'll hit this something else. So China's economy was decentralized by Deng Xiaoping in 78 to 89, that period. Um, you had socialism with Chinese characteristics continue up until Xi Jinping in 2013. And it defines socialism with uh, Chinese characteristics because when I think of socialism, I think of government helping people out and – you know, a, a generous welfare state. So, you know, if people don't make a lot of money with the income or other stuff, they'll have their you know, basic needs met by the government. But it's my understanding in China that that infrastructure does not really. You don't get health care. You don't get unemployment benefit in China. It's not socialism. It's communism. OK, um, so it should be communism with Chinese characteristics. Now, those characteristics change dramatically with Xi's arrival. Um, and his third term, when you saw. Hu Xintao taken off the podium, mm -hmm. and you saw his economic specialist from the Politburo removed, effectively. Everybody that is close to him now and advising him are political ideologues. The, probably the most famous of which is Wang Huning, who's the one that writes the books. He was, he, there's some rare photos of him in the White House and he, he, the books he's written are but cri very critical of the American system and the capitalist system. So if we've, if we've seen she declare a shift away from centralization, how have we seen that manifested? Away from decentralization. Away from decentralization. How has that manifested? Well, you would imagine with a weakening economy, you would want to keep the people that really help the economy, the tech entrepreneurs. Well, we've seen tech really slaughtered by the CCP. Uh, you have to have CCP built into any private company now. So I, I, I think back to any, any of the viewers that have watched Dr. Shivago, there was that famous scene on the train where the communist apparatchik said, you've got to do this, this, and this. And it was completely illogical. That's how meetings at the company, they have to ask permission of the CCP representative whether they can do this or that. So profit and is, is that not, enshrined in law? Is there a paper trail for that? Or is that just an understanding? They have a phone call. Uh, no, no, no. I think, I, I believe it was in, it's in Chinese, Chinese law. It was definitely an announcement by Xi. So, you know, if you have a come, so, you, you know, you're sitting there with Tesla, for example, as a CCP member on his local board. Okay. Uh, Ford, GM, Ford is beginning to pull out the EV market in China and bring that all home. Um, you've even got now, this is the interesting thing, I don't know whether you read this, 80,000 new agricultural, agriculture police were, are being employed, otherwise known as crop cops, because she and the centralized powers that be want to make sure that the farmers are producing what the government thinks is best. So they want more soybeans. So there were pictures on the on the internet of banana fields being fire, you know, burnt down by fire. So you've got these agric agriculture, and that's eighty thousand more. So there's obviously a lot more 
already there. So they're controlling agricultural production. This is all very Stalinist. So when, when I see people say, well, she is a Marxist, no, he's actually a Stalinist. He's a, a particular brand of Marxism. And if you recall your, your history, Stalin was very centralized and, that, and very controlling. And it was quite, it was not a good place to be. You know, if you got on the wrong side, goodbye. Um, so the primacy of the whole she situation is for national security and independence from the US world order. That is where China is decoupling. So if we go back to that chart we've just looked at, that was the US charts. We're built, we're, we're just finishing off the China, you see two US flags, US progression. There will be a Chinese one. And a lot of it is retaliation, but a lot of it is China doing their own thing, such as um, this espionage law, such as CCP member is inter integrated into all private companies. Okay, um, so we have a, we have this is this decoupling from American rules based order to a new Chinese led order. Now that's what the BRICS plus is, but that's a very dysfunctional group. So the question is, can he pull this off? When you see development of new Chinese laws and regulations and it, the state security has to enforce them. That's part of the centralization. And, you know, I'm not using Stalinism in a, in a political sense. I'm saying if you know, know your history, and if you don't, Stalinist was very central. Stalin and Stalinist system was very centralized. And if you try to do something innovative or something different, the security forces will come right down on you. You know, and the head of the security forces at that time is Beria. Um, so you're going to see... But it's, China is not nearly as repressive a society as Stalin. There's, there are, are, there are instances... Not, yes. yes. not yet. Not yes. yet. Yes. Okay, I, I don't disagree with you, but yeah, yeah. you're seeing, I mean, this clampdown of foreign consulting firms, that's really what really worried the American Chamber of Commerce. Mm -hmm. And what's also worried the American Chamber of Commerce is this imposition of CCP member on all these private companies, including foreign companies. So they are, there's an effort by Xi to break the American rules-based world. Okay. Interesting aspect is, go back to the Politburo, where he took out all the economics guys, Li He, Li Qichang, they're out. So what we are seeing is political ideology is trumping economics because the economy isn't doing well. We've seen that. The uh, zero COVID was a disastrous policy. And, you know, the move, I mean, youth unemployment got to a new record high today in China, 20.4%. And there's another 11.8 another million university students graduating in the summer. This, these sorts of things are quite disastrous uh, for that sort of system. So he will continue because he's shown that political ideology trumps economics. Um, and I, and you know, if you if you listen to Mark Warner, he will say that it became explicitly clear that all Chinese companies' first obligation is to the CCP. The Chinese are trying to oblige foreign entities, their foreign 
from branches, branches, whether it's finance, whether it's manufacturing, to have the same obligation, first obligation to the CCP, not to shareholders, not to customers. That's quite a break and a significant break from what we're used to in the West. Um, so, you know, that is absolutely Chinese national security preferences. And that will, you know, that affects who wins the AI race. Um, that affects satellites, synthetic biology, advanced energy, EV, alternative energy. So, yeah, and that's, that's according to Mark Warner, head of intelligence on the Senate committee, Senate's head of intelligence. So he saw all this beginning to occur in 2013 at the beginning of Xi's term. Um, now, you've got set up specifically the House set up the House Committee on China. It's led by somebody who is a very intelligent guy that should not be discarded. Um, and I think yeah. Mike Gallagher. And I think he will become um, a leader in foreign policy, particularly with respect to China. So, you know, these things are big changes in the U.S. approach. The Chinese, you know, after Clinton allowed China into the WTO, it was fair game, right up until Obama. Obama did nothing about the, the islands that were being converted in the South China Sea. Big mistake, right? They were initially, it was said, Fishing. It's going to be for fishing. Um, well, it wasn't, was it? It all became very military. Um, it's it, Actually, I mean, you know, Harold came up with a very good phrase. China is not only decoupling from the world, it's decoupling from itself. The change from Deng, Deng Xiaoping and hmm. allowing entrepreneurs and private enterprise to flourish. Well, that's that's so, it's clearly that's gone, um, but, and you know I think from what we hear, finance is the next shoe to drop anyway in terms of where you know wh where's the next tech? It's going to be in finance. That's where they they're going they're going for. Um, but foreign, so much of finance is already government owned, right? In China, yes, but a lot you know it's been a lot of finance in China has been based on the. The Western model. So, you know, there was an edict that came out a few weeks ago: no bonuses, bonuses are no, no longer permitted, uh, and that included the foreign branches. Right. So, it strikes us that it's a very dangerous thing from the point of view of the economy and the impact on the world economy, wherein China goes political ideologue over and above economic pragmatism. But Nick, what do you think of the Chinese, you know, for lack of a better word, propaganda about consumption? It's not my understanding that Stalin's vision was one of abundance. It was one of you know equality. Stalin did not imagine his subjects, Soviet subjects, to uh, you know have two cars, be able to you know fly no, from. Look, especially if you were a Ukrainian, you were in real trouble under Stalin. Yeah, I'm no, not using yeah. Stalin in that that sense of a comparison. I'm using Stalin in terms of centralization of the economy. Yeah, yeah, I, I know you are. I'm, I'm just putting a point <coughs> out that uh, you know the, the propaganda from you know Chinese state-owned media is 
go fly, go take a vacation. It is the, you know, George uh, W. Bush, go to the mall to help the economy yeah. on steroids. And I think China's track record of uh, telling their citizens what to do and Chinese citizens complying is, is, is quite a good track record. Uh, up until recently. If you, you know, this is disappointed one. And, the, you know, I'm a great student of behavioral economics, Kahneman and, and so on, um, and Richard Thaler. Logic tells you that the people that are going to spend money in consumption in China are those people that own their own houses, apartments, whatever. They're making a decent living. Unfortunately, those people have taken a massive hit on their real estate, whether it's one house or more, a massive hit from the bursting of the biggest bubble in history. So that, from, my, from our perspective, dampens consumption. And if you look at, look at it, even the consumption side hasn't hit expectations. And those expectations had the benefit of very poor comparables. So it's all falling short. The other thing that I would I would suggest is this um, youth unemployment situation with another 11.8 million graduates hitting the workforce. That's also another issue that's going to be problematic for them. But what's the deal? Why is the youth unemployment rate so high? Because where youth you know, graduates would veer towards tech companies and edutech, they're not hiring anymore. They're doing quite the opposite. Um, you're basically getting a skills mismatch whereby out come these graduates, they're too skilled to do, you know, blue collar work and there's no white collar work available. Has it, hasn't China loosened its grip on tech companies a little bit or am I mistaken about that? Uh, they've stopped tightening their grip. I wouldn't say it's a loosening of the grip. I mean, Jack Ma is now teaching in Japan. You would want Jack Maher involved in helping the economy, wouldn't you? A huge success, but a huge company that's going to be split into six. These, there's somebody that, you know, even Biden, Trump and Biden would both call into the White House and seek their advice if the economy in the U.S. So it makes, in that respect, it makes no sense. Then in terms of the consumption side, so we felt that uh, it was going to be a bit of a damp squib going forward. But not only have they taken a huge hit to their own balance sheet, okay, there's, you know, we're not seeing, if you look at the real estate market, everybody says, oh, well, it's bottomed. And it's, it's, no, last month it's starting to fall again. There's that phrase in the market, even a dead cat can bounce. Mm. It looks like that may be the appropriate phrase for right now. A dead cat has bounced. Because the, the, the data that's coming out, and I think I, you may have seen it in, in one of my dailies uh, this week, the data is very poor on China, very poor on China, real estate. So that's going to be a dampener for the, uh, the domestic consumer. And then the other thing is the white paper protests indicate that there's not much desire to get married. There's not much desire to move out of your parents' house. There's not much desire to have children. And again, all of those aspects would boost consumption, but you're seeing moves against that, that the, the edicts from above. Have more children. They're not having any children. So it's, um, 
it's a poor situation that's been driven by the politics. And I think they've probably lost touch with certainly the youth. One would expect that to be problematic in the future. So Nick, so what are the investment implications of the reverse CFIUS executive order, which which you uh, and Harold believe to be imminent? Well, private, private equity and venture capital, obviously under restriction, but this due diligence problem and the attack on the foreign consulting firms to do normal due diligence has a wider implication. Okay, so one, one suspects that even those that invest in some of the secondary markets will be reticent to do so now. And then there's another thing. Secondary about, public markets like the stock market? Yeah. But there's also another area where you should be a little bit concerned about investing in China, and that's the bond market. We now no longer have price transparency, which means there's one price market maker, and that's the Chinese government. So even if you're buying through Connect and you're buying offshore, when you go to sell, because we've got nowhere, you know, Mint is no longer doing it. The three big companies that were providing price data, uh, you can't get it on Bloomberg, I don't believe. Let me just double check. No. So you don't know where it's trading anymore. You can hear where it's trading. and But that makes me reticent, one, to be trading directly with, with Chinese counterparties. Two, I think there's a possibility that could be down the road in the reverse CFIUS, the congressional side, because investing in Chinese government bonds, isn't some of that money going to the PLA, the military? It's got to fund some of the budget. And we know that the Chinese debt to GDP ratio is pretty high now. So, and they're desperately seeking foreign investors. They're not making themselves very popular with the foreign investors, but take it closely. Right, but wait, Nick, isn't, isn't uh, foreign ownership of, of Chinese sovereign bonds relatively small compared to U.S.? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. By the way, the Chinese have been buying U.S. treasuries again lately. That, that, that's something that uh, goes against the domestic. So, but the point is that pulling the price data away, that's all part of this data can't go out. They, don't, they want to control all the data, which goes back to the centralization, goes back to the espionage law. They're closing things up. They're making it harder to do. And you, you can see that by some of the comments from the American Chamber of Commerce. They're saying this is problematic for foreign companies. And you continue down this path, not only are you going to see less interest in um, foreign companies coming in and engaging, you're going to start to see foreign companies come out. Okay. And I think that trend to start, you know, is already, I mean, Ford are now pulling their EV manufacturing efforts in China, closing that down. Stellantis, which owns Chrysler, mm-hmm. is out, out of China. Okay. Um, and I think that will be an increasing path, certainly for American companies, because their executives are in danger. They're in danger. As reverse CFIUS goes through the EO, and as Congress starts to act on, legislation, the Chinese will retaliate, either creating legislation that allows them to go in to uh, Bain, a U.S. consultancy firm, and then arrest six of the employees and take all the computers and everything, 
because they were doing due diligence, uh, it will get worse. And, and, you know, we've seen it with other countries. When the daughter of the CEO of Huawei was arrested in Canada, what did the Chinese do? Arrest two Canadian diplomats. It, you know, there's many examples where they've done that, tip for tat. Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, I've been there once. I don't think I'm, I used to like Hong Kong. I've been to the mainland once. Don't think I'm going back to either place again. Not because I've done anything bad, but because you know, publicly critical of what the Chinese are doing, and that probably doesn't go down too well. Um, it's very risky. And now the State Department—I don't know where you saw this—a couple of days ago issued a travel advisory about going to China for American citizens. So it's all heating up. And the, the key point is, every action by the U.S will be met with a retaliation. And they've probably got a list of stuff they want to do as they decouple themselves, which will appear either like retaliation or completely unreasonable to foreign entities there or planning to go there or doing business with. It causes the break. You know, it's just one of those problems that will intensify. Um, You know, I mean, it, it was quite amusing reaction to the Chinese balloon. Well, it was obvious what it was. Everybody knew what it was. All the foreign papers were saying exactly the same thing. And the Chinese, it was, a, you know, we wanted back. It was a, a weather satellite balloon. At that, that, you know, historically at that height, I mean, no, it wasn't. It was a, it was a, an espionage balloon. So it just, it's problematic. I mean, retaliation, let's look at Lithuania. No imports, no exports, no trade at all with China because they allowed Taiwan to open a representative office. Yeah, you could never do that to the US. No. Yeah. You know, right? So, so, but there's no, there's no representative office there. And, you could and do, you, you, anything US, is possible, but it would, it would be an economic disaster for the entire world. If, look at Australia. If the US consumed another, zero of Chinese goods, that would be- give you another horrible. example. Australia called for an independent- Investigation of COVID. Oh, oh that. Oh, and also uh, Australian coal in China was being held up, right? Yeah. Right. Um, so it's we have to get used to this, and it will just make doing business harder and harder. The question is, can the Chinese create an alliance? Well, interestingly enough, probably not with countries that have coastal exposure to the South China China Sea. Everybody's got even the Philippines where. Uh, Marcos Jr. wanted to be quite pro-China. They've got this problem with the fishing and the, and the Chinese Coast Guard attacking the, the Filipino fishing boats off in the EZ, the economic zone, which I think is 12 nautical miles, off the Philippine coast. So they're in their own waters and they're being, uh, shall we say, manhandled by Chinese Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. And so, so, Nick, when do you think this reverse CFIUS executive order is coming? I think the last time you and Harold were in February, Harold said he expected it might be in as, as early as March. So we haven't had it yet. Haven't had when it do you yet. think you'll get it? Well, it looked, obviously now it's after the G7, but it's 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 publicly out there. People know it's coming. So yes. it's It's been um, a telegraphed trial balloon in the press a lot. Yeah, exactly. Um, so obviously... I mean, the initial intent was to before G7, with all members of the G7 having already been briefed so they could have a discussion and get general agreement. 
those briefings would have already taken place anyway, but we suspect it's after G7. But it, going back to the election cycle in 2024, between now and 2024, all this is going to get higher intensity. Congress is quite determined to do legislation on this, and legislation will be wider and more restrictive. China yeah, that's will, something I, I will say. Of what I've seen of congressional talks about China, the Republicans and Democrats, some uh, Congress people seem utterly united on the topic uh, that yeah. something should be done about China in a way that I haven't seen Republicans and Democrats aligned on you know, pretty much exactly. my entire life. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me, okay, let's get actionable on this in the financial markets. Sure. It seems to me, apart from the economic rationale, you've got to be long dollar against the Chinese one, the offshore, so USD versus CNH. And... You know, we're just skirting below seven right now. So the data today has had an impact. So 699.70. I suspect we're going to go and retest that 740 high and break through it. Because the Chinese, if, they, if they're not getting the, the demand from domestic consumer, how are they going to, where are they going to get the demand to boost the economy and keep the population happy? Exports. You need a lot cheaper yuan than where we are now. So we could, you know, we could see an adjustment to the CFETs. We could see a break above 740, which was late last year. Um, that has implications. That has deflationary implications, obviously, um, in terms of the foreign customer. Things become cheaper. Yes, but that's, that's kind of a good deflation. It is in the old world. If we have restrictions in China, it retaliating. I mean, the interesting thing about this, the agricultural police is, you know, you're looking at um, China has 10% of the world's population, 20% uh, of the world's population, but only 10% of the arable land. The, the, the edict from above, from the centralized government is they need substantially more soybean. Okay, so you can't, you the farm, there has been farm, arable land, you're planting soybean, that's what you're doing. And that's where the cops are checking up, okay? And they've also shifted their exporter of choice from US to Brazil. Um, it's sort of- Nick, we lost your video. Yeah. There we go. There we go, there we go. Um, it, it, it's sort of these sorts of control features and adjustments. I mean, they're, they're importing Australian coal again because they need to. Uh, but when the coal ban was on in Australia, Peabody Energy and the Americans exported to their heart's content. And you but know who makes they, a lot of soybeans. Right. And when, but when they stop these things, it has implications in the domestic U.S. market or the domestic Australian market. South Korea, there was a, you know, they were trying to break one of the, the supermarket chains in China is owned by the South Koreans, and there was a, a buyer strike, and that was orchestrated by the, the government. So, and that was when the South Koreans took uh, delivery of the Thud missiles, I think. Um, the Chinese can express their displeasure in many ways. But what's getting worrying now for foreign participants in that economy is the ability of the Chinese 
to use the security apparatus, it's equivalent to the KGB, reports directly, now reports directly to Xi to enforce the edicts from the center. It's not a good situation. And if you look at the history of centralized economic management, it was bad enough in Russia, it was hard enough in Russia, it's going to be near impossible in China. Nick, can I ask you, what's, what is your level of confidence in this, this view? It seems quite high, but is there a parallel throughout your career of something that you had a, a high view in geopolitically that, and it happened? Or maybe another example where you had a high view in a geo, something geopolitical uh, happened and it Japan. didn't happen. Okay. Japan. So the pro- real estate bubble was absurd. The risk on the real estate bubble was picking your, your chart, your opportunity, the levels to get short the Jap- Japan. But the minute that burst, you knew that there was going to be a long period of stagnating growth. We didn't know how long it was going to be. And that's a comparable, um, that's a good comparison with what China's going through. And we wrote this article in this, the latest uh, edition of the International Economy magazine, which you can find online. We're looking at, China is looking at a lost decade or more. She is an expert in how the Soviet Union fell. Again, politics, not economics. He should have been studying what happened to the Japanese economy. And before right, so that, economics, but what about geo, geopolitics? Because it sounds like your and Harold's thesis is much more that you know, the, the, uh, oh, Michael well, Pettis yeah, has made is that uh, you know, Chinese growth will be stagnant, very low, lower than much than expectations for the next decade, next two decades, like Japan. But that's little to do with geopolitics about you know uh, uh, Xi's. Uh, well, it could have an impact. Power. It could ultimately have an or geopolitics, because if Chinese economic growth really disappoints, how stable is Xi's position? In the right, end? but I'm talking about reverse CFIUS, not your economic prediction. Yes, I know. Um, it will get worse. Every, we are splitting into trading blocks. Deglobalization, decoupling, nothing stopping that for the time being. Because you've got, in, you've got two powers. You've got the U.S. rules-based order, and you've got another power that economically is very powerful, wanting to break away and create an alternative to the US rules-based world. So far, it's got Russia, for sure. It's it, It's got somebody here in Brazil talking about it in a positive fashion. Um, and I do that, even though that, you know, that. I may have to be very careful in the future of stating anything negative on Brazil. They've got a uh, something going through Congress that is a real challenge to freedom of speech. Um, but it's it's very hard for the Chinese to impose these these exchanges of yuan for exports. It's a barter system. It's all at the margin. It's a barter system. If the Saudis get paid for oil, it, some some of its oil exports in yuan. And they want to buy solar panels, but they can't because the Chinese won't export any. They need them. What are the, the Saudis going to do with the yuan? They're going to sell them for dollars. Much easier. So it's you're, a, you're skeptic of the de-dollarization narrative. Totally skeptical. You, the de, listen, our view on the dollar is, apart from the, the economic arguments against de-dollarization, the dollar has earned the trust and people say, well, you, you know, they, they confiscated Russian assets. You're a private individual or you're a private firm. You have law, common law. Common law prevails in the US, it prevails in the UK. It's the law of finance. 
it's the law of property rights. So yes, that's that's where you go. Uh, if I was, I know one major bank with quite a lot of exposure to the Far East. Uh, one of their most senior people is saying we have to focus on Anglosphere, where we know we've got our rights protected by the legal system. That legal system is common law, law of finance. So that's to us, that's the biggest plus of the dollar. Your alternative is to go to a yuan-based system. You don't know what the law is. The law can change day by day. Do you have access to your money? If you go into the domestic market, not necessarily. If you're a foreigner going into the domestic market, these things change. Um, so yes, we think it's going to get, there will be a split into trading blocks. I'm very interested to see who goes with the Chinese. And I tell you why, if you, I, I, here's a book recommendation, Putin's People. Okay, it was talk. It's a book talking about the history of Vladimir Putin and how he came to be president from having been an underling to the mayor of St. Petersburg, and it's supported by the St. Petersburg KGB was it? But the the basic principles of, upon which they took over the presidency and they gained more power after his re-election, and the Yeltsin family moved away, was off the principles of the Russian Orthodox Church and the White Russian community, particularly those based in Switzerland. Those principles are looking for Russian empire. So how is it consistent that Putin is now has created Russia as a vassal state to the Chinese? I, I just find that incompatible. And that's his closest ally. So it I I said I think the answer is he, he doesn't say it's a vassal state, and that's kind of just an understanding, you know. It's not well it's a practical situation, isn't it? Given the, the Ukrainian war. It would take years for them to Re-establish. I mean, they have got the second biggest nuclear arsenal in the world, but it's very different having those pointed at the US. Right, right. Nick, let's, let's, um, just let's the stick on topic. Can you, can you summarize your view in a simple way for, for folks to understand about reverse CFIUS and its consequences in you know okay. 90 seconds? Sure. Uh, reverse CFIUS will come as an executive order. It will be followed up probably over the next year and a half by congressional legislation, which will have wider scope and more be more res restrictive. And if you're in the financial markets, the trade to put on for when reverse CFIUS comes in is to be long the dollar against yuan using the offshore CNH, um, or you could be short some dollar proxies, uh, or China proxies rather, and the world is splitting into two. It's at least two trading blocks. Maybe, maybe there's another trading block in Central Europe or in the Far East, but, and I think the the biggest block against the Chinese to counter the Chinese weight will be CPTPP, which the British have now joined. Uh, and you've got Canada, you've got Mexico, you've got Japan, South Korea, they're all, all there. Um, Trump pulled out, but in the end, that will probably be, uh, that should, the US should go back into that, but that, that depends on politics. Um, and in fact, with CPTPP, because you've got a free trade association, you've got a backdoor into the US market anyway via Mexico and Canada, uh, which the, the British were very excited about. So we're going to split into trading blocks. That will be inflationary to an extent until the domestic resource, resources are reshored. Deglobalization is done, is, is coming. That's it. Globalization is finished. Um, and the question outstanding is, 
there are a couple of questions outstanding. Which countries will join China over and above Russia fighting against US rules-based uh, world? And if all this disappoints, if political ideology hits the Chinese economy further and in a really bad way, how strong is she? Could he survive? Or could there be something that displaces him? But that's further down the line. That is further down the line. We'll, we'll leave that there. Uh, Nick, it's been great getting a chance to interview you, uh, hearing your views uh, and of Malgram Glinsman. Your firm, Malgram Glinsman, is also a research partner of Forward Guidance, meaning that uh, the audience of Forward Guidance can get discounted access to your two products, the first of which is a daily research note uh, for uh, mass market appeal normally costs $1,200 a year. Folks can get it uh, for $900 a year uh, using f- the forward guidance uh, discount code. And then you have an institutional uh, research product that is a long form written by you and Harold that talks in great depth about the themes that we've uh, discussed here today. And it did advanced, advanced notice. So yeah, you were writing about this uh, you know, very early on, on in the year when you know, well before you know, anyone in, in the media was, was really talking about it. And uh, that uh, normally is, you know, it's an institutional price points, normally uh, $50,000 a year. We go with a forward dis- uh, guidance discount. It is $40,000 a year. Nick, tell us about the what the clients get for both products. Let's start with the uh, institutional product and then we'll move on to the daily. Okay, the institutional product, um, they get... Between now, this may be a, a wide margin between one and four reports a, a month. Uh, over the last, you know, the, the recent month, we, we're on a one report, but it was specifically asked for by a very interesting client, and we know it's going to be very useful in the finance and corporates and the C-suite se- sector. Uh, and it's the follow-up to our reverse CFIUS paper and going into much greater detail of the trends and what's going to happen in the future and how you should be taking action now, otherwise you may get caught, okay? Uh, Taking action now, it can be exemplified by GIC pulling out of private equity investments in China. And they're probably the most successful investor in China, almost knowledgeable. Um, And with that, we we will be available once a quarter for a chat. Now, if you want consulting over and above that, that's negotiable. Um, and in fact, what's happened is this current paper, which has taken quite a long time because it's involved a lot of discussion, uh, and discussions externally, uh, came out of a request from a client who's more than happy to pay extra, you know, so on and so forth. So these are informed, long form, deeply researched papers. Um, and, you know, given Harold's background, people should be very comfortable that our sources of information are very solid and very significant. Uh, with regard to the daily, we this is an old product that I brought with me from previous a previous life. Uh, it's it's looking at each day. There's a some observations from the markets. The opening section looks at what's happened overnight or. You know, opening U.S. data that comes out. What's the reaction? What you expect? Then we look. Then I, we look at um, what we feel should be you should be watching out for in the markets, both directionally and risk management wise. We bring in some geopolitics because you know we had an article Monday on the Turkish election. It's relevant. It's relevant. People trading. Yeah, 
Uh, and we do, in between our big pieces for the institutional, we, we put in some updates. Now, the daily goes automatically to the institutional client subscribers, but this daily comes out between, I would say, 9 and 10 o'clock New York morning. So we allow the US data to be released. So we've got a full data update globally and we can react accordingly. Um, and it seems to work in terms of people don't mind it not being before the bell. They don't mind it be, not being before eight o'clock. It's, it, it's been defined by somebody as their go-to piece of between 9.30 and 10.30. And we're going to read it because it usually formulates opinion, market opinion, actionable ideas. We'll, when I talk about actionable ideas, we're talking about uh, stock beta and stock index beta and stock alpha, sector alpha, macro beta. I guess you can have macro alpha, but I always find that hard to define. Um, and risk, right? And, and risk management, hedges. And those hedges could be like we did in January when we warned of a, a liquidity crunch, credit crunch in March, April. You know, we said, look, everybody was short the treasury market looking for high yields, put on a hedge that gives you exposure to yields dropping dramatically. Prices Nick, this is for institutional clients you're talking about. No, that, that, that was institutional clients, but we also put that on the daily. Okay, okay. Okay, so... Um, so you get some of that... Some uh, of the institutional yeah. snippets get onto the daily. I view yeah. the, the, institution, the daily as an institutional level daily commentary for everybody whether you're an institution or whether you're a registered investment advisor or whether you're a retail private, you know, small private family office or a retail investor. Um, and it's at a price point that is accessible for some folks who are retail investors, whereas the in institutional product is appropriately priced as a premier institutional product for institutions, uh, you know, including are, big, bigger family offices. Yeah. Right. Uh, who are managing, you know, a sufficiently large sum of, of money that, uh, you know, they, they really need these insights on what is going on in China, private equity, venture capital, stuff like that. I would say that the daily, particularly at the rate we've agreed with, with you is what are we looking at? Um, we're looking at, uh, $17.31 a week. What are you paying for your newspapers or various alternative search? And, you know, we're right at the front line. You know, we talk to the big institutions. We don't necessarily convey their views, but um, where we hear something interesting, it gets reported. Uh, and, and we're always looking at, particularly over now and probably for the next three to five years, you've got to look at, you've got to consider investing as a risk management process. Risk can make money, but you've got to manage your risk. And that means you've also got to accept that there's downside to it. So that's what we're trying to minimize is uh, and it, inform people as to downside, but at the same time, allow them to let the upside trades run. Okay. So, I mean, I, you know, right now, big trade for anybody who can do it is long dollar against the uh, Chinese one. Right. And so the, Institutional product and the uh, daily product will have two different links for that, right? Is that right? And they'll, they'll be That's in the description. Correct. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. And there'll be a code for uh, for Blockworks for you. If Wonderful. They, if they contact you, there'll be a code. You know, one of the yeah. codes already. So, yes, there we go. Uh, yeah, there we go. Uh, so we'll, we'll put all the details in the description. Uh, Nick, thank you so much. Talk soon. My pleasure. Thanks, Jack. 
forward guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.